You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. You can shake an apple off an apple tree. Shake a shake a sugar, but you'll never shake me. Uh-uh-uh. No serio. I'm gonna stick like glue. Stick because I'm stuck on you. I'm gonna run my fingers through your long. Welcome to Before They Were Live, an ongoing and monthly conversation through the Disney animated canon in chronological order. Doing our best to play a part in a healthy ecosystem between art, criticism, fandom. Sometimes our contributions are little and broken, but still good. Hopefully, along the way, we enrich the viewing experience and have some fun, too. Today, we are learning to be model citizens from Disney's 42nd film in the canon, 2002's Lilo and Stitch, one that I would consider a big hit in what um, we've decided to call the near-miss era of Disney films, uh, but we'll get into all of that shortly. Joining me, as always, to talk it over is the mosquito's food of choice, Michael Farmer. Hey, Michael. How's it going, Josh? Oh, I can't complain. I'm camping out here with a convicted criminal. <laughs> <laughs> I, I clearly should have said um, I prefer Evil Genius. I, I, missed, I missed my mark on that. I'm sorry. That's all right. Uh, this month, we also have a very special guest. He eats all four food groups. He looks both ways before crossing the street, takes long naps. It's Deacon Stephen Graydonis, the creator of DecentFilms.com and film critic for the National Catholic Register. Hi, Stephen. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Hopefully, uh, by the time I leave, you won't feel like I have to be punished. (laughs) (laughs) With bricks? (laughs) Five times a day. Five times a day. That's right. All right. So, um, yeah, so this movie, um, directed by uh, Chris Sanders uh, and um, Dean Dubois. Dubois, um, They both worked previously on Story in Mulan. Um, and then they both went on to uh, How to Train Your Dragon. Um, they were they were working on a film um, during the the uh, Disney Pixar transition era. Um, uh, it was called American Dog at the time. It eventually became Bolt, um, but they were fired off that film by John Lasseter. So anyway, that's that's kind of their history with the with the Disney uh, franchise. But this is their first. Uh, this is their directorial debut, and uh, and a pretty good one, I would say. Well, I would say so, too. In fact, um, it, it's interesting you, you call this era. I, I'm assuming that you you're thinking of the films in between the end of the Disney Renaissance and the start of, I don't know, maybe the, the John Lasseter era of Disney competence. So is, is this what you're calling the <laughs> near miss era in, in uh, the Disney canon? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I, I mean, a lot of people refer to it as post-Renaissance, as I'm sure you know. Um, it was I can't remember where I where I pulled near miss from. It was it was uh, somebody was talking about Atlantis, the Lost Empire, and I, I stole that from them. Um, so apologies for not 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 having correct attribution here, whoever you are. But yeah, um, I really liked that the near miss era. I, I like that better than post-Renaissance. So. I, I think of it as the era of Disney looking for their new groove. Mm-hmm. They, they've They've recognized that the Renaissance has definitively collapsed and they really don't know what comes next. And you can see this, I think, most clearly in the films of 2000, where they um, they, they went in search almost of a new empire. And, and this took them to Atlantis, which for me is one of their less successful efforts, not a total failure but not one of the more interesting films. It also took them to um, the, the Mesoamerican empire of um, The Emperor's New Groove, which I think is one of the best films of this era. And and for me, one of the two films, along with Lilo and Stitch, that is really stands out among the, the films of the entire Disney post-Renaissance up to the present time. I, I agree. I agree with those two picks. Uh, I mean, we we did uh, we did Emperor's New Groove a couple months ago, and and both of us were just bowled over by it. I liked Atlantis until I started talking to Josh about it, and he kind of talked me into thinking it was a mediocre movie, which I I, I think he's right. Like I I think I was overestimating it because I expected to hate it and just kind of thought it was fine. Uh, that I, I tricked myself into thinking I liked it, 
this though, like this is uh this is an all time classic Disney movie. It's as it's I, I would say it's up there with with most of their big hits from any decade. Um, even though well, it tonally, it's absolutely nothing like any of them. It, it's nothing like any of them, and it has that in common with The Emperor's New Groove. I, I think that these are really the two films in which the desperation at Disney mm-hmm, in, in mm-hmm. this period pushed them to try something completely different from anything they'd ever done. Uh, maybe they were trying to do that in um, um, in Atlantis, The Lost Empire. There, I think they really um, uh, were, were uh, crushed under the weight of their admiration for Hayao Miyazaki and the films of Studio Ghibli. They were trying too hard to do a Ghibli film and they didn't really know how to do it. And they could, they they didn't get away from one of the driving things that defines so much of the Disney canon, which is the need for conflict to be driven by a villain. And one of the things that I find so fascinating about Lilo and Stitch is this wonderful warm-hearted humanism that drives the film it's it's a sci-fi action movie with ray guns and exploding houses and starships and 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 space battles and yet at the end of the day there's no bad guy right there's there's no villain who needs to be defeated this is a film that has empathy for all of its characters and i think the decision that really drove that from the beginning was the decision to focus on a character like Lilo, who yes. is so wounded and, and so needy and is driven to project qualities onto other people, including, say, the little girls at her dance school that they manifestly don't have, and then ultimately onto Stitch. And, and her goodwill and her need for other people to be more than they are is what ultimately, I think, drives the movie in, in this warm-hearted direction. She is an incredible character, re- really remarkable um, in, in the sense both that she's very funny and, and it's, it's very moving. But also to me, now I don't have children, both of you have children. To me, she seems very much like a six-year-old girl. She, she, she acts the way my nieces act, you know, she's like she... She seems real to me in a way that uh, even in good Disney movies, they don't always seem like they are real pictures of people. Well, and and what I think makes her particularly real is, is just how complicated and needy she is i mean you know imaginative also um um you know with with tremendous um um positive qualities but but a very a very messy character and and in other disney films you, you, i think of for instance um frozen which starts out with a protagonist uh, if if um, Anna is the protagonist who suffers an incredible trauma, first she loses her parents and then she spends the next several years of her life having a non-relationship with the only other person she knows singing to her sister from outside the door about do you want to build a snowman and you know she's spunky and a little um, um, a- a- adorkable but but not with the kind of, of really needy qualities that mm-hmm. we see in, in Lilo. Just the, the way that the film defines her from the very first substantial scene where we see her going to this dance recital and she comes in late and she's dripping wet and she gets into a fight with one of the girls and she bites her. Right. And <laughs> she's obviously crossed a social line that can't be crossed and the teacher has no no choice but to take action but it hurts her so much she practiced she just wants to dance she practiced and you know if you've ever had a kid who struggled with social issues man it just breaks your heart i i think the the brilliant thing they do with lilo or maybe the brave thing I should say is that they're not afraid to make her unappealing in some ways. Like you wouldn't want to live with this girl in a lot of ways, right? She, she, she does screw everything up. She's mad. Sometimes she's unpleasant, just the way real children are. Um, and especially the way a child who lost both of her parents would be right. And, and they're not afraid. They're not afraid to not make her an angel, which is, I, I think is a problem they ran into with frozen. Anna is, is too, She's too together. She shouldn't be that together. Uh, but Lila's not together, and they 
they they don't just let her not be together. They emphasize that she's not together, and it works really well, I think. Yeah. Well, it's a movie of not together people, right? Sure. Like I think this this movie's full of just um just adorable character moments for all the characters, um, but per- particularly for Lilo, like like you guys were just talking about. Um, but you can you can see um, how they relate to each other and how they all kind of are are desperately in need of something as well. And particularly with the sisters, Lilo and, and Nana, like you can see, like not you can tell that uh, the older sister Nana would 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 probably also bite somebody. Like yes, um, our first interaction with her, you know, like a car pulls in front of her, it's it's Cobra Bubbles, and you know she kicks the car and yells "stupid head" as she runs away. You know, like like she's got her own own stuff going on as well. Um, and so. Yeah, you can totally see how being being raised by a sister who's acting as the mother, um, like would would make this character Lilo. I think that's part of the richness. But then even like uh, Doctor Jumba and Pleakley, like they are obviously uh, desperate for their own sort of um, affirmation in their life. Um, you know, uh, Stitch, Stitch. That's the the whole you know the the whole plot of the movie is him trying to discover where he belongs. So like everybody's got got this neediness which i think is is part of of what makes the movie um on a character level work so well even the boyfriend uh david that's his name like they Mm -hmm. they 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 didn't make him have it all together he he's also kind of a screw-up even though he's you know really good-natured and obviously nani should marry him um because they're 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 right for each other and he he you know cares for her and her her screw-up of a sister I I, yeah. I I I really think the the character moments in this movie are are, are fantastic. Yeah, one of my favorites is is right there at the beginning, right after that uh, um, scene you were talking about, Stephen, in the at the dance recital, and uh, she's got her doll that she's made herself, and um, and then she's upset because the other girls won't upset won't accept her, um, but she. Uh, so she chucks it on the ground and then she comes back and and uh, picks it up and hugs it like it's 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 so sweet. And you see you see within there like all that all that's going on in, with her, you know. One of the th- things that I think um, really highlights that aspect of bravery that you mentioned um, is the fact that Nani and Lilo's relationship is so problematic and so dysfunctional that a social worker comes into their lives and you like him. He's he's sympathetic. You see that he's right. He wants to take Lilo away from Nani and you see his point. But at the same time, you're rooting for the sisters. You're rooting for this broken family that that takes there's there's an incredible uh, level of of nuance and ambiguity in in the filmmaker's willingness to portray a family that is so dysfunctional, but at the same time uh, that you really want to see succeed. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think a really telling scene between the two sisters is they so they have this huge blow up in front of Bubbles and and uh, and Lilo goes and locks herself in her room and then. Uh, then she and Nani eventually make up, and as soon as the the quote unquote falling star falls and she wants to make a wish, she's right back to being bratty. So, so you know, as a as a real person would not learn the lesson that quickly. As a real person, it doesn't actually get better just because you you make up. They they let her go right back to being a brat, and they they let uh, Nani also be uh, kind of a pain in the butt about it too. She pretends the gravity is malfunctioning and she can't move fast enough to get out of there. I, I really liked that scene. Again, it felt like something uh, a real six-year-old and 17-year-old would do, however old Nani is supposed to be. I assume 17. So so the film ultimately is a kind of redemption story. It's a redemption story for this broken family. It's ultimately going to be a redemption story for Stitch. And, and if it's important that Nani be seen to have poor impulse control and violent acting out and these other qualities that make her unsympathetic even while you love her, I mean, Stitch is 
genuinely allowed to be a monster. I yeah. mean, he's just rotten. He he ha he is he's violent. He's unsympathetic. He has no empathy. Um, he's he's prevented from being a real monster pretty much solely by his his size, by the absence of large cities on <laughs> the island where he lives. Um, and and then the the other check in his life is Lilo. And this is it, the, the stage is set for Lilo's relationship with Stitch by her interactions with the girls at her dance class that she calls my friends. And of course they're not her friends. Right. They don't like her. They want to have, but she needs them to be her friends. And show, so she, she projects that onto them. She has an imaginary relationship with him, with them, even as she also recognizes in this very disturbing kind of voodoo scene, they need <laughs> the to be punished. On, my friends need to be punished. <laughs> uh, but, but, it's for for a girl who's so broken when nani takes her to the pound to adopt a pet she immediately gravitates to the most broken thing that she can find there she senses mm -hmm. that there's there's something that she can potentially fix and maybe something that, that can potentially fix her. She doesn't want a good dog. She wants the worst dog. She wants the, the, the dog that was dead when they brought it in that morning. And, and that, that bond, that attachment between Lilo and Stitch um, is, is ultimately able to transcend uh, all of the massive obstacles that Stitch brings as, as a monster, as a genuine science fiction uh, engineered by a psychopathic scientist, a, a monster, she's able to reach him on some level and at least to make him aware that something is missing in his in his existence, in his programming. Um, he 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 connects with the story of the ugly duckling. He um, um, he's he's opened up in emotional ways as the film goes on, and it's it's really quite it's it's credible and and it's very moving yeah well they're really um kind of mirrors of each other i guess in a in a, in a way because and you see that the in one of one of my favorite scenes is um when when lilo is talking to stitch and she says um she says to him i know that's why you why you lash out mm -hmm. and why you push me and and these sorts of things like i i understand you like we understand each other because we're both broken in the same way where where we're missing a, our, our family and we know that there's this thing missing and we don't know how to find it again and really our only hope of finding it is finding it in each other um which which is i i think it's it's just very very powerful moving moment in the film but the thing is, that's not why he lashes out. That's not why he pushes her. He lashes her out and pushes her because that is what he's designed to do. Um, but she recognizes this lack in him that he like he couldn't possibly recognize because he doesn't even realize until that moment that you're supposed to have a family, that you're supposed to come from somewhere, that most people are not designed to destroy cities in a lab by a insane alien. So like she she sees this in him even when it doesn't exist. I, I I think Stephen I think you used the the term projects it onto him, and I think that's right. That but by the force of that projection, it actually becomes true. Yeah yeah I think that's right. The relationship it reminded me of most in the Disney canon is Geppetto and Pinocchio. Pinocchio mm. is an incredibly sad movie. Our listeners can go back five years or whatever and listen to our episode on it to hear my thoughts but it's so sad because geppetto based on the strength of absolutely nothing is convinced that pinocchio is a good boy he says this to him as soon as he's created as soon as the the uh as soon as the blue fairy brings him to life he says you're a good boy and Pinocchio's demonstrably not a good boy he's a very very bad boy uh but but geppetto believes it and like the guilt that Pinocchio feels because he doesn't live up to this expectation actually turns him good. And I think something similar happens with, with Stitch. Stitch, Stitch kind of becomes a human being because he's treated like a human being or whatever the non-specious term is for, uh, for, for, <laughs> <laughs> for moral agent. <laughs> and, 
and and that that humanizing impulse reaches out beyond Stitch. It ultimately embraces Jumba, his his creator. Um, and and I, I just have to say, in in a film um, with across the board, just a great voice cast and a great sound design. David Ogden Steers, um, who, when I think of Disney, I think, first of all, of course, of his role as Cogsworth right. and <laughs> in Beauty and the Beast. And he's 180 degrees from there. He just in, invents this incredible, monstrous, boisterous, irrepressible, vaguely Eastern European um, um, mad scientist uh, who who just has no redeeming qualities when we meet him, uh, but he also is he's moved mm-hmm. by the fact that as he becomes reacquainted with his own creation, his creation has grown in unexpected ways, and and this ultimately has a softening effect on him, and he becomes part of the extended family um, that we find at the end of the story. Well, and, and Pleakley with him, right? Pleakley is this kind of know-it-all bureaucrat who's not good at his job, doesn't really know anything, has in fact been duped into thinking that the mosquito is an endangered species. And, you know, he's he becomes a part of everything as well. It, it really is. It's a very warm-hearted movie. It's very open. Part of that, that open-heartedness, I think, or, or part of the openness of the movie um, um, is reflected in on, on a different level in the way that the movie feels to me to be genuinely inspired by and and responsive to um, the Hawaiian setting and and to the culture of Hawaii in a way that when I look at Renaissance films like um, Mulan or The Hunchback of Notre Dame, I, I feel like Disney is going to these countries and and kind of um, almost pillaging them for the Renaissance movies that it wanted to make anyway. And here it feels to me like the Disney filmmakers are, are really, they're looking for inspiration. They're open and, and we see them willing to challenge themselves, not only in the approach to the background art, to these, these luminous watercolor backgrounds, um, which are inspired by, the the colors and by the look of of hawaii but also create um um a look about the film that is is different from anything else i can think of in the disney uh in the disney canon but also and and there's an explicit counterpoint here in the character design of lilo and especially of nani who is um you know a a young adult um a teenage woman um, but but who doesn't look like the traditional uh, willowy Disney heroine? She has a tummy. Um, she ha- her her limbs have substance to them. Right. Uh, she's she's not a Barbie doll. And what what's really almost kind of uh, um, amusingly that the movie drives that home when Lilo encounters her friends and they're all clutching these willowy Barbie dolls. And what Lilo has is this um, kind of horrifying rag doll. And, and she has this nightmare story about, you know, aliens laying bugs in, in her head and, and so forth. Um, but, but those, those Barbie dolls that her friends are clutching represent a standard of, an, an idealized and abstracted standard of feminine beauty that you find throughout the Disney canon, but not here, right. not in this film. And and so there's there's a contrast between that element, which is really imported. You know, this comes from the continental United States. This comes from Mattel. This um this this standard of feminine beauty, but you don't see it involved in Lilo. She is a beautiful woman. She is attracted. You can see why David likes her. Um, but she doesn't look like um um she doesn't look like Tiana from um, the um, uh, the Princess and the Frog, or the the sisters in Frozen, or Milan, or Belle, or any of the others. She does, or, or Elastigirl from from um, uh, the Incredibles in in the Pixar canon. You know, she 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 looks more much more persuasively like a real woman. 
And the fact that Disney did that and then never looked back and never did it again, I think is really interesting and really telling and makes me value this film all the more. Yeah, that that's yeah. that's maybe the weirdest thing about this movie is it's beloved, right? I don't I don't know how it did at the box office. Maybe Josh can tell us, but it it doesn't seem like it has a lot of direct airs in the Disney canon. I mean, you could say well, Mo- Moana is set in Hawaii, or I, I get maybe it's just Polynesia. I can't remember if they're actually Hawaiian, but anyway, you you could say that. You could say well, it's a movie without where the the main characters have a love interest, and that's like Brave. Uh, you could say it's a movie about two sisters, and that's like Frozen. But I mean, none of those movies really feel like descendants of this movie because this movie is so, um, so out in left field. I suppose it, it's it seems weird that a movie that this this many people love wouldn't serve as a model for movies going forward from Disney. Well, and I think part of it, part of what you guys are talking about, it 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 is credit to Chris Sanders. Like this is really his artistic style so they really like like you were saying Stephen, like there there is a, a a disney style of of what people look like and they really went away from the studio style in order to adopt um chris sanders um own style and you can see that a little bit like in um uh how to train your dragon like you can see that the the lineage maybe goes that way a little bit um, from Lilo and Stitch to, to How to Train Your Dragon. Um, and he also did The Croods, which has some very um, interesting, different sort of uh, humanoid-looking people. I haven't actually seen that movie. I've only seen the the, the posters. But um, So I, I think part of it is that, that, that maybe he, it, it was too it was so much his style that to ape it now um, would be weird, uh, considering he's not with the studio anymore. Um, but then as, as far as the... Um, like why aren't more movies like this? I think there there was an intentionality in this movie. Um, there was there's apparently a retreat that happened at Disney in um in 1997, where they got together and kind of were assessing the state of animation. And they said, um, in that retreat, they they'd come up with this idea of well, what's the equivalent of the of Dumbo for the modern era? Like what is something that we can do where instead of, of pushing bigger and bigger and bigger, what if we were very restrained and went small? What if we gave a single director kind of his own ability to, to flesh out a story? And, um, that's, that's, this movie was born out of that. This, and, um, and I, and so I don't think they've done that since, you know, like, I don't think they've had another um, in-house retreat where they've said, hey, let's go really small. Um, and and so I think that's part of it, too. Huh. There is a there is a little uh, Easter egg um, alluding uh, to that uh, on uh, in Lilo's um, bedroom on her on her easel there's a there's a small dumbo um like stuffed animal there oh well yeah yeah that makes sense and when she would like dumbo i would think even just in the in the universe of the of the <laughs> of the movie i feel like that girl would would sympathize with dumbo which is another incredibly sad movie yeah yeah Dum- dumbo to me is one of the less it, it's it's interesting that um contemplation of Dumbo led to something as interesting as Lilo and Stitch because among the films in the early Disney canon uh, the the, the, um, kind of burst of early creativity that gave us um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Fantasia Bambi and Pinocchio, all of which I consider stone cold masterpieces, just, just untouchably brilliant films. You have this one oddity Dumbo which is is really almost a kind of a throwback. It's it's a kind of a, a blast from the past. Uh, the other films were made by the new wave of Disney animators, Disney filmmakers, who went on to become Disney's nine old men. But they were young men at the time. <laughs> um, but, but Dumbo really was made by kind of the old guard. Um, these were the filmmakers who had been working all along on Disney's um, short films. And when you watch Dumbo, you really are seeing kind of short form thinking stretched out to barely feature length. Like it's right, just it about, short. yes, it's, it's, it's just about an hour long. Um, there's none of the, uh, the thought to giving the characters 
um, the extra richness that that went into the thinking of, of for instance, the Seven Dwarves in uh, in Snow White. Um, um, the, the style of animation when you when you look at at Dumbo as a character compared to the much more anatomically realistic uh, deer that we get in Bambi, you know that was that was an important line of thought that if, if a deer is going to be the protagonist, it's going to have to look like a deer. You can't just draw it looking kind of like a sack of wheat, as as one of the animators said, uh, referring back to a deer who appears briefly in um, in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Um, so, so, and, and then, you know, from an emotional perspective, I just, I find Dumbo to be, um, manipulative and tear jerking and, um, just, just unacceptably dark for too long with too little, um, um, catharsis at the end. Mm. I'm, I'm not a Dumbo fan. I don't like Dumbo. <laughs> I, I, I love Dumbo and I, I find the, the baby mind sequence in Dumbo to be, very, very effective, more so, I would say, certainly than anything in Snow White, but probably Pinocchio as well. And in Fantasia, you almost can't compare it. It's, it's such a different kind of movie. But It's unbelievable. It's just, it's, it's so, it was decades ahead of its time, and, and that's, that's a tragedy and, and a, a whole other story unto itself. Um, but, but with Lilo and Stitch, I think you have, um, you, you have, inspiration and a search for something new that I don't see in Dumbo, but it is interesting that, that, that there's, that there is that connection, um, that, that they were looking for, that they were looking at what, what can happen if you really let filmmakers, um, like, like Chris Sanders and, and Dean Dubois, um, if you, if you let them just go to town and, and do their own thing. Um, you know, these are, are filmmakers clearly who had, uh, something special, um, uh, Sanders had worked previously. I think you already mentioned on, on Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, the Lion King as a writer. Um, um, Sanders and, and Dubois went on to do How to Train Your Dragon, which I think is really one of the stronger films of the DreamWorks canon. Um, but where How to Train Your Dragon and then The Croods, which Sanders went on, did he did? I think he did that with Dubois also. Um um, where, where those films really hit on one of my least favorite um, tropes of modern family animation, what I call um, junior knows best syndrome, uh-huh. <laughs> where parents and especially the father have this very hidebound, repressive, uh, strict set of rules that make no sense. They don't understand their child. Their child has these ambitions and desires, which which the parents don't understand. And so the, the, the child is driven to defy their parents, justifiably so, and, and is vindicated in doing so. And in the end, the parents come around and and as you get the line in um, How to Train Your Dragon, where Stoic literally says to Hiccup, I'm sorry, son. Um, that's, that's kind of the key... Um, um, Junior knows best syndrome moment. Um, it's it's there in Spades, in in the Crudes. It's in so many other Disney films. Little Mermaid uh, is the one I think think of. Little Mermaid really began the trends, but it wasn't until How to Train Your Dragon that it took its fully modern form, um, where the, where the parent has to be humbled and apologized to the child. Right. Right. Uh, you see that again and again in modern animation. Um, but, you know, Lilo in Lilo and Stitch, you have a virtue, which I think runs particularly strong in the Pixar canon, which is that the protagonist is allowed to be wrong and make mistakes mm-hmm. and then suffer the consequences of those mistakes and really have to reckon on on where they need to change. And and that goes back to Pixar's founding statement to Toy Story, where Woody is a sympathetic character. He's not a jerk. He's not a monster. But he really is fundamentally selfish. And he, he makes crucial moral mistakes in his relationship with Buzz to where he has to be humbled and he has to kind of walk it back and he has to admit that he was wrong. Um, and, and I think what we see in Lilo and Stitch is that Nani has overextended herself. She has to face up to Cobra Bubbles and admit that she can't be Lilo's mother. 
And Lilo has to admit that um, um, by choosing Stitch and by seeing things in him that just weren't there, she's made things worse. And Stitch has to realize that he's made a mess of everything. And, and only when these characters own their failures and are willing to take responsibility for them, then there's hope. That's something that runs, as I say, particularly strong through the Pixar canon. You don't see it in many other films, many other animated films outside of Pixar. It does show up now and then, and Lilo and Stitch is one of those rare cases. Hmm. Moana kind of does that a little bit, too. I guess. It's been five years since I've seen Moana, so now that I've said that, you you, you, you probably have a better sense of that movie than I do. Well, uh, Moana, Moana has a kind of modified Junior Knows Best syndrome. Moana feels called to the sea, and her father says, no ocean for you. Um, and, and it's a little bit more complicated than that, because we do come to understand that the ocean is dangerous, and the father has reasons. But ultimately, Moana is vindicated, and Moana is right. And the ocean, after all, is a goddess that's calling Moana out there. And, and so we don't get the scene where the father has to apologize, but ultimately, and this is, this is really one of the keys to the junior knows best syndrome that we do see right from the beginning, right in The Little Mermaid. Um, there's, there is a social norm that is in place. Right. Humans and merfolk do not interact. But because the child crosses the lines, the child rebels against the social norms, in the end, everything is completely different. Whenever you see in, in, a, in a modern animated film, whenever anyone says it's just the way things are, that's another way of saying by the end, it's all going to be completely different. Right, right. Yeah. And this movie kind of sidesteps all that by creating the the whole of of a broken family. So there is no authority figure to rebel against. And in fact, it's the it's it's the, almost the opposite where it's. Um, everybody has to, everybody has to come to the realization that actually we need, um, we need something else here. Like this is, this is actually, um, not a healthy situation, um, with Nani raising Lilo by herself. Right. What, what they need is an authority figure who will tell, tell Nani what to do, tell her how to, how to hold this together, which she can't do. And, and what really, I think, um, uh, completes that sidestepping is is the humanization of Cobra Bubbles, the Ving Rhames character, and then also the Grand Councilwoman played by uh, Zoe Caldwell, um, who was the Countess in the Purple Rose of Cairo, interestingly. Oh. <laughs> um, you know, they, you, you, bring, you bring these characters who represent bureaucracy, two very different bureaucracies, the bureaucracy of... Um, um, so the, the, the human uh, social worker, um, a social welfare institution, but, but also connected with the men in black and, and with human alien interactions. And then the Grand Council one. But, but all of these people are ultimately trying to do the right thing for everyone. Right. And, and so there is there is a change in the social status quo in the end. But it isn't that any. Uh, uh, overbearing parental authority figure is overridden. It isn't that anybody has heroically defied anything. It's that at the end of the day, the people in charge really are trying to do what's best for everyone's well-being. And in this case, in this family, it works out. And it's really beautiful. And it's it's really very touching. It's it's like the the finale, the the kind of group hug ending. And the Miyazaki influence that you get here um, in the kind of post-credits um, uh, paintings and illustrations that you see that relate the afterlife of the family, yeah. uh, where we see the humans and the aliens interacting and, and really becoming a kind of extended happy family, um, you know, all all scored to um, um, to Elvis. Well, to Winona um, covering Elvis anyway. To, to Winona covering Elvis, yes. Burning Love. Um, um, it's, it's, it's very moving. And, and to me, one of the most endearing films of the entire Disney canon because of it. You, you know, it's interesting. You, you bring up the bureaucracy because in, in some ways I think the ending of this movie is 
what bureaucracy would do if bureaucracies were run by human beings instead of kind of running <laughs> themselves as, as perpetual motion machines, right? Because they're working within the rules. They're not breaking the rules. They're not changing the rules. They're working within the rules to find a situation that will actually benefit the people that the rules are supposed to benefit. And the problem with bureaucracy, right, is it gets it's it's inhuman, right? It's 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 set up so that no human being ever talks to another human being, ever thinks about what another human being actually needs. But here, you have the bureaucracy actually doing what it's supposed to do, um, in part because you've got good people running it. Yeah, I think that's I think that's accurate. This is it's a um, it's a sympathetic interpretation of a dysfunctional household where the people involved it is a dysfunctional household. The relationships are problematic, but everyone is trying their best. And, and that's also the case in, in the bureaucracy as well, in the human bureaucracy, in the alien bureaucracy. And obviously there is the potential for things to go very, very differently. Um, <laughs> and that's that is where, you know, at the end of the day, it is a fantasy. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and but there, frankly, I'm not sure in real life you would want the equivalent of Cobra Bubbles to keep giving nani chances you know because i i wonder if in real life if he kept giving her chances it would end up with lilo being dead somewhere you know uh, not not at all an unlikely outcome and in fact it almost does happen right you know i mean that whole house winds up getting burned down um uh being being destroyed and um so yeah yeah lilo's life is definitely in danger and and nani's uh, incompetence distractedness um uh, uh, divided among different different roles and different responsibilities however you want to look at it you know that really is a part of it um um and you know you throw you throw a stitch into the mix right, uh, <laughs> right. i was i was gonna say in nani's defense what was she really gonna do if had she been there when dr jumbo shows up um ready to uh destroy everything like what what's she really gonna do and it just in her defense <laughs> yeah she might have made it worse I, she should have taken lilo with her to the market when she went for her job interview that's what i was yelling at the screen yeah but last time well, she took the... lilo on her job interviews stitch ended up <laughs> ruining it i get it Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think, though, there is a little bit in here of um, kind of a law versus grace type thing um, where it's it's really like you said, Michael, like it should be that the the rules are set up in order to help people. But when when it's just follow the rules, um, you know, like. Uh, you get Pleakley saying, well, that would be a, a tremendous waste of, of intergalactic resources or whatever, you know, um, and to bring you a get... six year old girl back from outer space where she doesn't belong. Right. Yeah. And you get, waste um, you, well, yeah. And you even get the ground councilwoman, you know, feels, feels trapped at first by her own laws. So you like, she can't do anything until she realizes, oh, there's a second, there's a secondary law at play where Lilo actually purchased um, Stitch, you know, and because he is bought, that changes uh, in some ways the, the equation. And so I, I don't, I, I didn't think about it until I just said that word purchased here, you know, but like we're, you know, we are also purchased <laughs> um, uh, by grace, you know, and, and so there is a, there is something maybe there um, of that interplay between law and grace that, that it's not a, an abolition of the law. It's a fulfillment of the law, but it makes, it makes things um, actually work in, in our favor. The way you put that makes me think of the Christus Victor theory of the atonement where, where Christ's death on the cross is a kind of judo move that takes, uh, takes the universe back from the devil who had stolen it. So there's no there's no rules broken, but you 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 maneuver inside it. I will say right. I'm, I'm glad that she feels like she can't break the rules. I think at the last five years uh, in in American politics have taught us nothing else. It's that uh, it's it's good for people to feel like they can't get around the rules. <laughs> and and um, we've also already alluded to the principle of of um, loving someone and seeing something in them that may not be there and, and by that very act, bringing that reality um, into existence. You know, um, Scripture says that God loved us uh, while we were still sinners and, and while we were still his enemies. And, and, and by his love, he makes us lovable. Um, and, 
you know, Stitch is searching for his creator. He's searching for his purpose, but he doesn't. Then this is, you know, obviously, it's, I'm not saying that this is is any kind of allegory for for Christianity. He doesn't get that love and that that sense of purpose from his creator. His creator tells him to his face, "You don't have a purpose." Right. Um, mm-hmm. But but he is loved. He's he's loved from need love uh, to make the distinction that C.S. Lewis does in the Four Loves: need love and gift love. Uh, Lilo loves Stitch out of need love. Um, but but this is enough. This is enough to begin to change him. Um, it's it's not enough to save their family in itself, but it's enough to bring something into being in this family of Lilo and Nani and Stitch that Stitch describes um, in in the kind of the crucial moment uh, before the astonished uh, councilwoman. Um, that this is his family. He found it all by himself. It is little and broken, but still good. Yes, still good. That that even when human nature is broken, even when the human family is broken, um, there is there is still um, you know the, the goodness that God has created us with. Uh, the, the image of God in us is not completely obliterated, and and therefore um, there is something in us that is able to be saved. It's a very pro-life movie in a in a certain weird way. That this this movie is supposed to begin with the destruction of this creature that you know has, as far as we know, not been created in the image of God as a monster, like a literal monster. And yet, by the end of the movie, like this is something we can't destroy. That it actually it actually is sacred. It reminds me in a weird way. Bear with me, of the uh, the third act of A Canticle for Leibowitz. Do you guys know that book? Uh, I'm aware, I know of it. I haven't actually read it. It's worth it's yeah. worth reading. But so the the plot is a nuclear explosion um, has destroyed the world and it has to rebuild it. Essentially, the first the first book is the Middle Ages and the second book is the Renaissance and the third book is another apocalyptic future. Well, in the third the third book it follows this um, it follows this abbot and. He, he is dealing with this group of people called the Pope's children. And they're called the Pope's children because they are nuclear mutants who only the Pope, only the Catholic church recognizes as being worthy of life. And he's trying to convince this woman not to kill her mutant child. And that's, that's what I thought about when I, when I saw this, I I saw stitch as this Pope's child who, you know, all all reason would say destroy it before it destroys you. It has no quality of life. It's going to make everybody's life worse. And yet, the movie says there is something in that in in that creature, that that entity, that being that is good, that is worth saving, that is worth not destroying. <laughs> of course, um, there is there's a, a joke in the movie that kind of runs a little bit against. That that whole concept um, um, with regard to how humans are understood uh, in the interstellar community. Yes, that's true. Uh, <laughs> we, 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 we aren't very highly regarded, but we do enjoy protected status. Not not because uh, we ourselves have value, but because mosquitoes have been declared to be an endangered species, and humans are an important part of the mosquito food chain. Of course, I, I laughed out loud know, at that joke. Well, it's 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 a, it's a very funny joke. Um, it's 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 absurdist humor. And then in the end, um, there's a reversal moment uh, involving Cobra Bubbles' Men in Black background, where it turns out that the whole concept was uh, was subterfuge uh, to send to to mislead the aliens uh, and and to get them to leave human beings alone. I almost fell out of my seat at the conclusion of that brick joke at the end, where he says that. I I thought that was hysterical. It's a very funny movie. The Ving Rhames yeah. performance, I think, deserves a little attention because that is a, that is a, a part that I think must have been very hard to play because you have to play him as the heavy. He is the bad guy um, for the first half of this movie. But even even at his scariest at the beginning, you you also have to be able to sense that he. He's he's doing this. He's being scary because they need him to be scary, and he, and he does it because he cares about them. And I I think he he really brings that across in uh in his in his vocal performance. It's it's a fantastic performance, and and like I said, 
Um, uh, all of the performances in this movie are are wonderful. We, we're almost at the end of the podcast, and we haven't yet mentioned Davia Chase, yes. who other other than this film is is probably best known to listeners as the voice in the English dub of Chihiro in um, Spirited Away, and and she's great as Chihiro, and she's wonderful here. She's great. Yeah. She's she she has so many emotional colors to play. She has brokenness. She has winsomeness. She has just a really kind of chilling moment that I, I, I alluded to before uh, with with the voodoo. My friends need to be punished. Uh, but but then she also gets caught up in in her wonderful the the world of her imagination as she's trying to explain to her dance teacher in the beginning of the film that it's sandwich day and that's why she's late and why she's soaking wet because of course there's this whole complicated story about Pudge the fish who controls and the a weather. peanut butter sandwich and there's no peanut butter and only stinking tuna and. You know, and then comes the punchline. What does all this have to do with being late and being soaking wet? Pudge controls the weather. You know, she just, <laughs> she's so good and she makes this character. I mean, I feel for Lilo more than I do for any other Disney heroine. Yeah, I, any I, I other. think, I think that's accurate. I mean, I, I, I love Belle in Beauty and the Beast. I love Tiana um, from The Princess and the Frog. Um, I, I, there, the, the character of Rapunzel in um, Tangled has so many warm and wonderful and winsome moments, but there is just no one in, in all of Disney, in all the Disney canon, and I think in all of American animation that compares with Lilo. Yeah. I, I, I think I co-signed that. I'm, I'm, I'm going quickly in my head through all the other movies and, and trying to think if I can come up with someone who, who I'm as attached to as I am to her. And, you know, the weird thing is the marketing basically dropped her after a few years. So, I mean, Stitch is the center of all the marketing for Lilo and Stitch. Um, and, in fact, I think now his series is just called Stitch. Lilo's not involved at all. And to me, that's just baffling because Stitch is, Stitch is a fine character. I, I get the appeal, but, like, Lilo is wonderful. I would I would love to watch another movie just about her. Leave Stitch out of it. Um, um, while we're praising characters, I want to throw out uh, a, a tweet stream that I, I mentioned um, when I when I first saw it last year. Uh, this is from an account called Reappropriate, and it's this is an appreciation of the character of David, David Coena. Oh yeah, David's terrific. <laughs> and and she says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it. She says. The kiddo is really into Lilo and Stitch right now, so can we briefly talk about how criminally underrated David Koena is? He's into Nani, but respects mm. the fact that she has a lot of other stuff going on in her life. So he's there for Nani, listening to her vent after she's fired, for example, and helps her get a job interview when she needs one to keep Lilo. He's exceptionally kind to Lilo, clearly interested in building his own relationship with her as a kid looking for family. Look at the way he plays with her during the surfing scene. Mm -hmm. The surfing scene is just is wonderful scored to um hawaiian roller coaster ride just just a great sequence love it um going going back to the tweets um helping her just to be a kid and have fun he risks his life to save stitch even though he thinks stitch has been hugely destruct destructive to nani and lilo's lives that, mainly that's the thing that clinched him for me is him he he went down to save stitch even though they think stitch tried to kill lilo right right Mainly because Stitch is important to Nani and Lilo. He's sweet, kind, generous, and has fancy hair. <laughs> and she adds, so much better than that so-and-so, Prince Eric. <laughs> Everybody's so mean to poor Prince Eric. But yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, I think, I think that's dead on. David is a, is a great character. Um, yeah, and, and kind favorite. of content to play second fiddle in this movie, which, uh, you know, it would be it would be a while before we'd get a Disney prince, if you want to call him that, a, a Disney male uh, romantic lead who who stays off to the side as much as David does. And um, and I've been I've been attached to Jason Scott Lee ever since I saw him play Bruce Lee in Dragon, and so um, it's great to see him come back in this role. My my favorite David moment is is when um, Nani tells him that he smells like a, a lawnmower, and and he starts doing a breath check. <laughs> 
Well, again, the first thing we see from him is that he has set the stage on fire. Apparently not for the first time during this luau. <laughs> right. So he's, but somehow he keeps his job. Yeah, it seems like what he did was way worse than uh, than what what Nani did. But I don't know. We need someone to be relatively stable. The one performance I'm not wild about is Kevin McDonald as Agent Pleakley. I think I think that character is a little shrill. Yeah, um, you know, he obviously is is playing up the comedy of the character and his um, his officiousness, um, his uh, his air of self importance. Um, we we do see a little bit of of uh, guilt and humanity from the character later on. Yeah. Uh, but but you're right. There there could have been there could have been more depth there. Um, I mean, certainly uh, David Ogden Steers didn't wait for the script to give him um, uh, occasion for humanity before he really, he deepened his character. And, and that could have happened earlier for Pleakley. I think it's interesting to compare Stitch to the much larger protagonist of the Iron Giant. Hmm. Um, both of these are essentially uh, weapons, outer space weapons. Um, but where Stitch knows from the outset what he is and has no interest in being anything else, uh, the Iron Giant begins with amnesia and has to kind of construct his identity and his meaning as he goes along. Um, so, but both of them find meaning in a relationship with a, a human child and, and a human child who is both someone who is special and imaginative, uh, but also someone with, with needs. Um, and, uh, hmm. I don't know if I have anything else to say about that. I will say that if our that, listeners somehow have not seen The Iron Giant, they must go see it. That's a that's a wonderful movie. Well, and and then both The Iron Giant and Lilo and Stitch, I think, have roots in E.T. Yes, um, in, in the premise. The, you know, the E.T. is really the grandfather to all of these films. You have a, a lonely young child with a troubled family life who is befriended by an extraterrestrial entity. Um, what's different about Lilo and Stitch is that with the E.T. and the Iron Giant, we never really learn anything more about the origins of E.T. or the Iron Giant. You know, um, the Iron Giant's mysteries are completely shrouded in, in mystery, his origins. E.T., we see his his buddies. We, we understand that he's some kind of botanist, that the ship comes, the ship goes. Uh, but Lilo and Stitch really ushers us into this um, very whimsical, colorful science fiction world and then and then brings that world to Earth and you get a kind of um, um, high concept, colorful, animated, men in black uh, by way of Osmosis Jones uh, dynamic, which again... <laughs> oh man, there's a, so there's a title I haven't heard in a while. <laughs> <laughs> Man, Osmosis Jones. And if our listeners that's... haven't seen that movie, they should definitely not go see it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but my my point is, like so many other things about this movie, this is this is a vibe that is unique yes. to Lilo and Stitch. It's a little bit like they said, uh, what if instead of E.T., Elliot had run into the alien from Alien? <laughs> I think the other movie, though, that gives me a similar vibe is um, Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, Rocket, Ra- Rocket Raccoon's um, uh, arc is a little similar to Stitches, where he's he, he's he's also a, he's been built to be a weapon, and now he's having to find his place and, and his family. Although he, well, I guess I, I was going to say he has that disgust with his condition, but I, Stitch does too, with the with the the scene where he goes out in the woods and says "lost" in the hope that. Somebody will come mm-hmm. and adopt him. Yeah. Do you guys know Lilo means lost in Hawaiian? I did not know that. I mean, that's what I gather. I don't speak Hawaiian. I should, I should make that clear. <laughs> I know Aloha and Mahalo. Yeah. We haven't talked about the soundtrack really. Um, the the decision to to make it ninety percent Elvis songs. Uh, I remember that got a lot of press in two thousand two when the movie came out. That was something a lot of people talked about, and it does kind of, it's kind of aggressively quirky, but it works, I think. 
Yeah, uh, another similarity between Guardians of the Galaxy and this one is going with the uh, that's true, yeah, <laughs> the aggressively quirky m- music. Um, and yeah. in both films, it's it's a kind of a character thing. Um, in Guardians of the Galaxy, it has to do with Star Lord's uh, attachment to his mother and and the way that those songs represent not his own childhood but her teenage years, and they're kind of her gift to him with. With Lilo, we don't really know what exactly her attachment to Elvis is, but since it's clearly not from her own life, it, it probably also has something to do with her parents. Yeah, that's that's yeah. that was my assumption. You can fill in you can fill in the backstory in your head a little bit on this, but yeah, I think it works. I, I think I think it works really well in this this. Uh, this movie, I, I love the little montage where you know she's trying to teach him to be a model citizen by, by, te- <laughs> by, by uh, helping him to, to be more like Elvis. Elvis Presley was a model citizen. The and the, the and innocence of youth. Right. Well, and I think that's but I mean that just plays to Lilo's character right. so well. The th- the things that she picks out as like you know what what can a model citizen do? Um, can dance, can play the guitar, and uh, can romance women. <laughs> it's it's so sui generis in so many ways that the other film that we've mentioned um, somewhat in this connection is uh, The Emperor's New Groove. Um, but even The Emperor's New Groove didn't completely do away with the, um, with the Disney formula um, in the sense that, you know, you, you do have... Um, cute animal sidekicks. You do have a uh, nefarious villain. You have big show-stopping production numbers, you know, not done in the manner of the Disney Renaissance, but still the echoes of the Disney Renaissance are here. And with Lilo and Stitch, there's really none of that. Um, there, This is a unique imaginative achievement. It's, it's a unique creative endeavor. Um, it definitely succeeds in its own right. Um, but there's no, there's no formula. There's no template. There's nothing for future films to follow. Mm. Um, at, at, at the time when I saw it, I walked out of the theater thinking that I had been given a gift, that, that this film was unique and that it would stand the test of time, but that it would also, it would remain unique. And I think that has been borne out by history. Um, you know, there are things about Lilo and Stitch that I'm sorry to think that Disney had no interest in following up on. Um, but, but then um, I'm also glad that, you know, apart from the, um, the inevitable uh, direct to video sequels and the TV show. And now, you know, I guess they're looking at doing a live action version. Oh, I'm going to tear, tear my hair out. Um, but, but none of that really touches this film. Um, it, it was, it was, it was born at a particular moment in Disney's development and that moment is gone. And, and we still have, we have these two films. We have the Emperor's new groove and we have Lilo and stitch. Yeah. I think it's interesting. You put those two together because we almost sort of only had Lilo and stitch because of, of the production history of Emperor's new groove. Like that, that Empire movie, of the sun. Yeah. It was meant to be an Epic. And so, but while it was meant to be an Epic was when they were coming up with this idea of what do we do? What if we do something small? And so Emperor's new groove kind of ended up small by uh, happenstance, whereas Lilo and stitch set out to be kind of a smaller, unique film. And um, I'm glad I'm, I'm very glad that we have both. Um, don't get me wrong, but like, it's, it's just kind of interesting to think like within the, Within the Disney Empire, it was almost only Lilo and Stitch. It would have been even more unique and oddball and and outside the canon um, had had not weird circumstances led to Emperor's New Groove um, getting out first. One thing we talk about on the show is how the Disney suits learn exactly the wrong lessons from all of their successes and all of their failures. And it seems to me that one of the lessons they might have learned from Lilo and Stitch is if you give a person complete creative control uh they might give you something that's pretty good you, you, you know it doesn't all have to be corporate product in in line with a, a kind of predetermined mission and i i just wonder how many movies after lilo and stitch um follow that formula of, of just like letting a person go with something well and i think i and, think they'll 
the next one that we'll see that does anything close to that is Meet the Robinsons. Yeah, um, which I, I like and, that which movie is, quite a bit. Yeah, and then that's but that's the last one before the Disney Pixar merger, and I think that Disney. I mean, I, I'm 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 mostly happy with the Disney Pixar merger, but um, the when John Laster and Ed Catmull came in, that that definitely was not the direction that they were going to go. Hmm. You know, like they were going they were going to go with more of the Pixar formula of the the broader the brain trust and all of that sort of thing, um, which has its <laughs> has its definite advantages. But I, I mean, I think that's why. Um, you know, I think that's why American Dog turned into Bolt and, you know, Chris Sanders was off of it. We might have seen an, another few very unique director driven movies, um, but the, the course of the entire company changed. All right. Well, um, yeah, thanks so much for, for coming on. We really appreciate it. Um, I was glad to do it. It was a lot of fun. Cool. All right. Well, uh, hey, our press liaison is uh, Kristen Philippic. Uh, we're on the old interwebs at Before They Were before they were dot live uh, and at christianhumanist.org uh, please help us continue this conversation by reaching out to us at before they were live at gmail.com uh, steven's website is decentfilms.com we want to encourage you to set your podcast players dials to the christian humanist radio network where you'll find an abundance of new and old shows to keep you going michael and i know there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on so thank you for spending your time with us so for Stephen and Michael Farmer, I'm Josh Altmanshofer, one fond embrace, aloha oi, until we meet again. <laughs>